Welcome to In-House Legal, where we cover a variety of issues pertinent to the general counsel and in-house legal departments of small, mid-size, and large organizations. Join host Randy Milch each month as he discusses the latest developments, trends, and best practices for this very busy and often complicated area of law. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. My name is Randy Milch, and I'm the host of In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. I'm honored and happy to have as a guest today Ron Bell, the General Counsel and Secretary of Yahoo. Ron is a leader in the tech industry, and he comes by it honestly with stints at a major law firm at Apple and in a number of in-house jobs at Yahoo. Ron, welcome to In-House Legal. Thank you, Randy. It's great to be here. Um, So let's start off at the very beginning, uh, which is always a good place to start. What was it that led you to law school? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I actually originally wasn't interested in, in law school, per se. My, my brother and I had a really early interest uh, in computers and programming. And we uh, started our own company making uh, electronic bulletin board dial-up software uh, back in the day, you know, in the, uh, in the 80s. And um, I had a fascination from an early uh, period with how technology enables communication um, and also with the social implications of new technologies such as, you know, transcontinental railroad communications and the social impact that those those things had on society. Um, And I saw the law as a vehicle uh, to pursue, frankly, to pursue those interests and help uh, develop it because um, I really saw uh, services like what what then existed, this was pre, you know, commercial internet, services like CompuServe and AOL being really game-changing over time, and I wanted to be uh, a part of that. So did you follow a scientific uh, path when you were in your undergraduate years, or...? Originally, I was interested uh, potentially in in two vehicles. One was potentially being a programmer, so doing the uh, you know the from from that angle. The other side was um, I had a fascination with journalism, which again did, doesn't directly link with what I'm what I'm doing today, but a fascination with the issues of communication um, and uh, social impact. And so, I originally when I went to law school, I. I thought that I might actually use that to pursue a journalism career um, and use the legal background to, to facilitate that. But when I was there, I realized that you know, my fascination with the technical aspects of the law and how that could be used to preserve and protect um, communications and enable uh, you know, and facilitate people communicating with each other was, was really what, what, my, what my strongest bent was. And so I ended up going that route. And so when I left law school, I almost immediately uh, you know, joined the law firm and, and started pursuing First Amendment and IP and commercial litigation law. So, so you go to Sun and Shine, where you, where you started out, and you have a very directed notion of uh, what you want to do with your legal career, what you want to do with your legal training, I should say, is probably more, more accurate. What was the you know, what was the what was your rationale for going to a law firm first as opposed to seeking in-house employment? And and what was your thinking at that at that point? Well, I really thought that going to a law firm would give me the training and the exposure I needed um, to, to be a better lawyer later. Uh, you know, the advantage of being a law firm, of course, especially a really good one, is you get exposure to so many different clients in so many different areas and so many styles of problem solving um, uh, and legal issues. 
Uh, and I felt that, you know, at least at that point, uh, that, that being at a law firm would, would, would be great training for anything that would follow afterwards. Um, also, quite frankly, I think, you know, most companies didn't at that time and probably still don't hire directly you directly out of law school. So it was really the path that, that was open to me to get the training, but it was absolutely um, very helpful in getting exposure and learning, you know, how to, how to work with clients, what to prioritize, you know, what issues, uh, you know, could have an impact on them and, and how I could contribute to that. Do you still think that a stint at a law firm is a good, is a good training ground, particularly one that, that, it, that puts some effort into the training? Well, I think I, I think there are many different paths you can take in the law, but I, I do think it is good training because of the fact that um, it really emphasizes the rigorous analytics and you know the appreciation of um, how to provide quality legal services. I do think that um, an in-house teach, stint teaches you a lot of other things, such as the consequences uh, of your legal decisions and how to frame them within the. Uh, to see them within the framework, rather, of, uh, you know, a, a larger business and business objectives. You know, one of the things about being at a law firm is you, you tend to be on matters. You get called in late in the game, at least if you're a litigator, when there's an actual problem. You deal with it until the problem is solved and then you or it resolves itself and then you move on. You know, if you're in-house, you really get exposure from the start to the finish of the consequences of your actions and the decisions, and you get a chance also to see the issues that people wrestle with when they're when they're making those decisions. And I think it makes you uh, a, a more ra- rounded uh, advocate. Yeah, I think that you know those of us who have been on the inside uh, tend to be pretty possessive of the experience, and most of us count it as as a highlight. Uh, although we do all know folks who have stayed in law firms and love it, so. I think there. Are, I think you're right that there are many paths in the law, and taking the time to figure out what you want to do is important. But let take a step back for a second. Uh, do you today? I, I'm sure that folks, younger folks, come to you and they ask you whether they should go to law school. What do you tell them now? <laughs> well, I, you know, I. I, I, I tell them if you really – law can be in a vehicle for many different types of professions. As I said, I, I had started off thinking that I might actually uh, go to the journalism route. Um, and it can be – the t- legal training can be used for many things. But, you know, what I usually find is that they're very anxious about, like, where they're going to go to law school and, you know, how that's going to position them for the next step and so on and so forth. And what I tell them is – you know, it's important to look at law school as a waypoint, not a destination. It's just as law is a process and not a thing. It's a vehicle for learning how the law works. And you have to appreciate it's not going to teach you how the world works. It'll teach you how to understand legal doctrine, right? But then when you get out, you're going to learn how to uh, how the legal doctrines apply to uh, real problems in the real world and how they evolve. The law is a constantly moving, constantly changing um, you know, a thing. It's 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 not a static. It's not a static process. So I tell them, you know, if you're really interested in um, in uh, you know solving business problems or in uh, solving or being a part of solving social problems, law is a great vehicle for a, a great training for that. Um, if you just want to do something else and want the legal training, that's also can also can be valuable. But what I tell them is, you know, enjoy the experience while you're there, and you know. Uh, uh, Really think about how it applies, uh, how how you can apply that to your life, and um, uh, outside when you get out, how you can how you can use that training um, to make a, a real difference in the world. Yeah, I think those are those are great uh, those are great suggestions. I think that the the one remaining aspect, of course, is that there are folks who are lucky enough to go to 
uh, elite law schools like you did, and then there are many, many folks who are going to law school and spending a lot of money, and then the real question comes up about how they're ever going to pay that back, uh, given the law, the legal market now. So there are lots of considerations to, to, to trying to figure out the career in the law and whether, it, whether law school itself is, a, is the right approach. Do you get involved in, in these questions as a general counsel? You know, there's lots of pulls on general counsel's time to, to be involved in this stuff. Is this one of the areas that you have put any interest in? Um, not not so much from the perspective of you know are there too many lawyers and is you know is the profession glutted in one area or another, but I have tried to use my experiences as a general counsel and, and also having been in house as well as um, at a law firm to help you know my law school, the University of Chicago, which has been putting together a technology law training program and trying to educate the next generation uh, of uh, lawyers who are coming up as to what some of the issues uh, are that they're going to face and how to think about them. Um, and I've tried to provide, you know, a practical perspective uh, in that regard. You know, I think um, it's incumbent upon those of us who have had this experience, as you said, this unique experience uh, in-house and as part of, um, you know, emerging internet, uh, excuse me, emerging in- industries such as the internet, um, to really share, you know, with the next generation what we've learned. Um, so I've tried to, to give back in that way. Yeah, I'm sure that they found it very, very helpful. So let's let's return to your career for a second. What you know, you were at Sunshine. You were you're a, you're a dutiful, hardworking, high billing associate. I'm sure. Um, uh, and then you get an opportunity to go to Apple. How did that come about? And and what was your thinking on taking that job? Well, you know, I loved Sunshine. It was a great experience. But I was resident in our Chicago office. And I saw that so much was happening in California and Silicon Valley. I was a California native, but though not from uh, the Silicon Valley area. And um, I really wanted to uh, get into more of a technology law practice um, uh, and had been you know, writing about it. I ended up writing a computer litigation column for the ABA for a while. Um, but I wasn't a part of it, and I saw this industry, you know, growing and um, the impact it was going to have, and I wanted to be a part of it. So um, I reached out. Originally, you know, uh, I was looking at, at some startups out here. That was, you know, was the dot-com boom time, and I thought that would probably be the route that I ended up taking. But I had kind of a, I found myself with an interesting problem. I was a litigator. Um, and most startups were not hiring litigators, first off. Um, I was an Illinois licensed lit, uh, lawyer, and most of them wanted a California licensed lawyer. Um, and, uh, you know, I found myself kind of shut out of Silicon Valley, to be perfectly honest. Um, it was very, very hard uh, to, to, to find a way to break in. At the time, though, you know, I was literally sitting at my computer, my Macintosh computer, thinking about how I, how I might, um, uh, you know, find a vehicle for participating, uh, you know, in, in the tech industry. And all of a sudden, like all of those things I had been doing, the, the, the work I'd done on the electronic bulletin boards and everything sort of came, came together for me in this flash of insight. I, I had been programming on, on the Apple platform. Um, and so uh, I reached out to Apple to see if they would be interested in hiring me. Um, and, you know, needless to say, they were not. Um, at that time, Apple was in a very different position from what it is today. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a company really teetering. Um, on the brink of collapse. Uh, this was pre-Steve Jobs. Um, I was there through, when I finally did join, uh, through the release of uh, the, uh, the iMac and the first iBook. Um, but Apple you know, was really, really struggling. They weren't hiring. They were shrinking. Um, I reached out. I said, I'd really love to work for you guys. And they said, well, it's 
we don't really have a position here. And I said, well, I'm, I'd be happy to come out and just talk with you. And um, would you be open to not having a conference, you know, a, a conference with you? And they said, that's fine, but we don't have a position here. <laughs> right. So uh, I came out um, and literally while I was there, uh, you know, someone it was Apple was going through tough times. So there was a fair amount of volatility. Someone gave notice uh, and they said, uh, look, you know, this is a little unconventional, but um, would you be willing to start in a week and a half? Uh, we'll move you out here. Would you be willing to, to work for us? And I said, you know, I would love to work for this company. I have so much, you know, belief in its product focus, in its, you know, sense of mission. I would love to join. And in a way, I, I ended up joining a company that wasn't doing that well because, in a way, no one, no one else was interested in doing it at that at that time. But for me, it was an opportunity to to really help to contribute to an amazing company, um, help be a part of its, hopefully, a part of its return and to growth story. Um, and also, uh, you know, make an entree into Silicon Valley and make a contribution there. So it worked out well, I think, for everybody. Well, that just goes to show you, you know, you can't make this stuff up. You happen to be in the office and someone gives notice uh, and, I th- and, and they offer your job. Is, it's a great story. Uh, and it's also a real testament to taking the risk of uh, flying out there on your own nickel to just have the conversation. So uh, it's a great lesson for, for, for folks who... Uh, sometimes stick back in their offices and just wait for things to come to them to realize that taking the chance and taking the risk can, can pay off. And it did so in spades for you uh, in that move. Um, so you spend time at Apple, the first iBook, the first iMac, and then Yahoo. So you were at a, you know, you were at a company that was largely, uh, at least at facing the external world, about selling products you know, selling pieces of, of hardware. What, what, and Yahoo was in a very different place. What was your thinking about making that switch to, uh, you know, a fledgling internet company at the time? Well, I, I loved my experience at Apple. I mean, it was an amazing, an amazing place. Uh, I was working on, uh, on, on hardware uh, products and I was the lawyer behind uh, what were then called the power books um, and, and doing a lot of hardware work. I saw, you know, Hardware obviously was going to continue, uh, and it was going to continue to be a business, and, and Apple was going to continue to invest in it. But the Internet was was still nascent, and it was growing and expanding so fast, and it touched on so many things I had always been interested in, communications, media, the intersection of technology and media, the social issues that come from that. And I wanted to be a part of it. After several years at, at Apple, I decided, look, you know, I... I have experience now. I've switched from from uh, commercial litigation over to licensing, um, which was the opportunity at Apple. I've learned a great deal, and I feel like I've paid back, you know, the, their trust and their investment in me, um, and 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 have contributed a lot. And now it's time for me to to think about this 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 other avenue. I had this real sense that um, this was this could be the beginning of of something big, and that I really wanted to participate in it. And so I looked around at a number of companies. Uh, when I interviewed at, at Yahoo, this was a company at that time of about 1,100 employees. It was a very, a very hot startup uh, at the time, um, but one of many, many uh, what were then called, I guess are still called portals, um, you know, Excite, Terra Lycos, Ask Jeeves, Yahoo, AOL, MSN. So it wasn't clear if it was going to be, you know, the one that succeeded or not, but it was... It was tremendously exciting coming here because there was so much, when I came in and I interviewed, there was so much excitement, so much passion about changing the world and trying new things and uh, exploring new technologies. 
and just a sense of this limitless possibility. Uh, and it was absolutely uh, exciting. You know, they, I was lucky enough that they, they, were, they were kind enough to make me an offer, and I accepted, you know, uh, pretty much on the spot. So give us a flavor. I understand the passion and the, the business excitement that was uh, going on at Yahoo at the time, given the burgeoning Internet. And I think it's, Im- but I want to give people a, a, a sense. Many people don't remember clearly. This was, what, about 2000, correct? Uh, 1999. 1999 the you know the situation the the commercial internet had barely was barely a glimmer what were the legal issues that were surrounding you know the internet as it was back in the beginning of the decade well you know it's it's interesting you'd say that uh, it randy about the commercial internet it's it's funny because it ties back to what you were saying earlier about your career when when i graduated from law school the company that i now work for and the industry in which i now work pretty much did not exist um, those things came about and grew quickly as part of that expansion I was talking about. You know, sometimes you have those, those defining moments where things, um, a technology is transformative, whether it's, uh, you know, electricity or the transcontinental railroad or what have you. And Yahoo, you know, found itself in 1999 in exactly that situation. There was this sense of uh, it, it, the first glimmers, what now seems very natural to us, communications on mobile devices, for example, or um, the ability to, you know, text somewhere, someone wherever they might be, or to find out news, you know, by, by just typing in a URL or tapping a, a, a button. All of this was new. And so with it came a whole set of, of, of issues as this network, which had existed more or less since the 1970s, you know, the Internet, um, suddenly found itself swarmed, uh, you know, by, 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 by users with companies getting on it um, and found themselves at a suddenly a different scale. And so basic concepts like, you know, uh, do you have to get an agreement with someone before you can link to their website <laughs> were completely unestablished. You know, what, what liabilities might an intermediate uh, like an Internet company have for what someone posts on a message board um, were not yet settled. Napster was one of the new hot startups. Uh, the whole notion of music online, uh, what that might mean was very nascent. And But of course, there were huge IP issues and huge licensing issues to work out. And but what's interesting, you know, looking back at it, is many of the themes that, that persist even today you know, rights in uh, intellectual property, um, the rights of individuals versus those of of states, the right to privacy. Those themes were 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 nascent, but they were they were there, and they and they emerged as the technology emerged, and the society you know got comfortable with it, and then sort of developed both laws and a sense of uh, uh, mores around how uh, those services should be should be used and what was acceptable social practice. So it was a really interesting time because many of the rules were unsettled, uh, but there was this sense that those rules and uh, and how the services conducted themselves and how users conducted themselves was going to be important, you know, to to the future, and in ways maybe that we couldn't even anticipate. So there was this sense of incredible possibility, but also a sense, I think, of real responsibility in wanting to think really hard about how do we offer these these services in a in a responsible manner with appropriate privacy safeguards and so on and so forth well it must have been an exhilarating time you were explaining what the legal issues were like uh, and the nascent and very important legal issues back when you first joined uh, yahoo now you're the general counsel of yahoo you've 
you've moved up and had a number of, of interesting positions. And since uh, 2012, you've been the general counsel. So now you're one of the chief people who are helping uh, continue to formulate responses to uh, those items of privacy and security uh, and behavior on the internet, which, in to my mind, consume us more and more and more uh, as uh, legal issues, and, and many of them are pure are, are legal issues, if not entirely in significant uh, respect. Uh, you know, I think a year ago, if we'd been on this, uh, if we'd been together, we would have talked about net neutrality more than anything else. And of course, it's one of my favorite topics. But I think now, uh, censorship and privacy and cybersecurity probably eclipse net neutrality, at least in the public mind, uh, as security incidents and privacy incidents and the rise of ISIS and all of those items seem to consume more and more of our uh, public space. Um, do you think that those are, are important issues that, that, that deserve a lot more discussion? Uh, well, I, I don't know if they could get more discussion because I think they are really uh, some of the foremost issues of our time. And I, and I absolutely agree that they're important issues. There's a real sense of responsibility, I think, that those of us who work in this industry feel for the fact that a lot of communication and, and, and now commerce and personal information is exchanged um, through our networks. Um, you know, we feel a very strong sense of responsibility to um, offer services that are as safe and secure as we can make them um, and that are operated as, as thoughtfully and with as much respect um, you know, for human rights and, and, and privacy as we can possibly build them. Well, let's talk about this for a little, a little bit more deeply. You know, I think that there are a couple of aspects of this sort of censorship slash privacy aspect. Let's talk about nations first. I mean, you, you, deal, you deal in multiple nations around the world. And I think what comes from that based on my experience of Verizon, where we were in 159 countries, is uh, not every place is the United States. Uh, in fact, relatively few places are the United States when it comes to the relationship between the government and the Internet and the populace. How, how do you at Yahoo approach the differences, and do you have a fundamental philosophy that you try to implement in every place you do business, or does that get pushed around more than you'd like by the exigencies of dealing with governments? Well, I mean, as you said, every government and every society more or less has a different view on, um, you know, many of the same issues. The view of privacy in Europe, for example, is, is uh, it has very different assumptions built into it from the view here in the United States and certainly views on um, uh, freedom of expression very widely around the world, along with the legal frameworks. Um, you know, we, we give thought when we're releasing products to where are we going to put our people, where are we going to put our servers, how can we put them in places and in jurisdictions where we feel like we have a reasonable control over and reasonable security over the, uh, over the information um, so that hopefully with some pre-planning we can avoid having them be subjected to um, uh, you know, experiences that we don't want, such as you know, governments coming in and, and, and seizing, uh, seizing data. Um, you know, our approach, our overall philosophy uh, is that um, we want our services to be used as vehicles for communication and the free expression of ideas. Um, and therefore, when we get requests from government, we certainly recognize national security as an incredibly important topic. Um, and we do respond, obviously, to, to the laws that we're required to respond to. But we construe everything that comes in very narrowly uh, and, and carefully because it's also important for us as the last mile between our users and their data 
um, to exercise um, that privilege, frankly, of, that they've trusted, entrusted with us um, responsibly. Um, and so, you know, my view, uh, Randy, is, you know, we have a responsibility for making sure that, um, you know, our, that governments uh, don't uh, abuse their authority um, in, a, in a manner that uh, sacrifices user, user privacy or compromises, you know, the integrity of what we do. Um, and so we have philosophically, you know, start with the philosophy that um, we, we try to educate governments about what we do, try to make them conscious of the balance of issues between, say, privacy and national security. We do our best to make sure that those issues within our company are widely understood by the people who build our products and by the people who operate them um, so that we can achieve, uh, you know, a degree of consistency um, in, in, in how we uh, respond to requests. And part of that also is being very transparent about the requests that we get. Obviously, there are limitations, legal limitations sometimes on those things. But we and many Internet companies publish transparency reports that, um, you know, really try to cast a light at least on the volume and the types of requests that we're receiving because we think that acts as a catalyst for governments in some ways to, to, to self-regulate. Um, obviously, they're going to ask for information or make requests in places where they really think there's a national security interest, but we, we don't want to uh, encourage fishing expeditions. We want to make sure that, that that power is exercised responsibly and in a limited, in a limited fashion. And do you think, I, I recall, you know, we put out Verizon's uh, transparency report for the first time several years ago, and I know you've put one out and many others do now. Do you feel as though it's had a positive effect on governments by actually just listing the number of requests you've gotten across the uh, uh, consistent with their laws, of course, and some are a little bit more draconian than others. But have you that it's had a positive effect? I think it's had several positive effects. I mean, the first is I think that I've definitely seen in in, in real cases governments thinking carefully about the types of requests that they make, knowing that those those will be reported out, um, not necessarily the details, intimate details of the request, but the fact that they are accountable. Right, in some way for the types of requests that they're, that they're making. Um, the second thing that it's done is really raised the consciousness of, of Internet users about who is making the requests and the at least in some basic level, the justifications for why those requests are being made, which has in a post-Snowden world really led to a, a, a dialogue I think is very healthy about um, what should this relationship be and what sorts of requests and legal framework should we have around those to protect civil liberties. Um, and the third thing I would say is it's been very beneficial for our employees because, you know, one of the ways that you protect human rights, I believe, is that you, uh, you educate your workforce as to the importance um, and the significance of the issues, what's being done and what you're doing about it and what your philosophy is. And so having an employee base that understands um, that these issues are important to the company, um, that there are people who work on them, uh, you know, uh, pretty much day and night, uh, and that our, our overall philosophy is to take a user-first approach is really beneficial, I think, in um, encouraging products that are uh, privacy-protective um, and processes and, and practices, frankly, that, that are the same way. Um, you know, we try really, really hard within our company to make sure that people um, understand that you know, business and human rights are a fundamental part of what we do. I, I, I even report out to our board quarterly um, on our human rights efforts. Um, and it's so much a part of what we do now that um, uh, it just sort of naturally infuses, uh, you know, the conduct of the company. And I think when, when you do that, um, when you've raised it to that level of consciousness, it becomes part of the culture. And then, and then, then it, it, in a way, lawyers can't be everywhere uh, and certainly can't know everything. But um, if people internalize the values, then, um, uh, you know, you have a much better uh, 
and more consistent rate of success. So let's turn the question just a little bit to what I regard as a somewhat of a new phenomenon, and that is there are some uh, companies, internet companies, that are expanding um, the, their view about what is impermissible uh, use of their service. And I think the, the most recent one of these uh, was Twitter's recent announcement about uh, expanding their view on this, and, it, and directly linked, by the way, to uh, the use of, of social media by folks like ISIS, which obviously is, is a very serious issue. But I think it's a little bit of a watershed, uh, and I wonder if you agree, for, to have companies more actively making judgments here about what they're going to take off uh, their platforms. Well, it's interesting. I won't comment on, on Twitter specifically, obviously, but I, I think um, every company, as you know, has terms of service and have had those those for years. And we've, we've long policed uh, our networks for things like spam and threats and child pornography and so on and so forth. Um, as, you know, entities such as ISIS have, have gained a foothold and have been using um, you know, networks to uh, to recruit and promulgate. Governments certainly have become very concerned about that, and I think, you know, to some extent, companies have been concerned about how their networks are being used. That that said, you know, I really think you need to operate your network in as content neutral a manner as possible. It's one thing if they're actually, you know, making threats or 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 clearly, um, you know. Uh, 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 attempting to, uh, you know, organize or, or, or uh, you know, engage in unlawful activity. It's quite another thing to create filters for um, particular types of viewpoints or perspectives. And, you know, companies, companies have their terms of service, but their terms of service are not the law. They're just a, a code of conduct with their, and a contract with their users. And so I think that while we do need to be thoughtful about what's happening on our networks and make sure that, um, uh, you know, we're being consistent and how we uh, apply the rules and, and, and not turn a blind eye or put our head in the sand to what might be happening. I also think that um, we need to, to, to be cognizant of the fact that um, uh, there is enormous risk if, uh, you know, multiple companies are removing content um, you know, with, without a degree of transparency as to what they do uh, or why they do it. Um, we shouldn't be taking, in my view, we shouldn't be uh, uh, taking liberties um, with, with people's freedom of expression. Uh, obviously, we're not government, so, you know, in the United States, we're not necessarily regulated by the First Amendment, but we exist as vehicles for people to communicate. And so the bias, if you will, should be toward uh, transparency about what we do and why we do it um, and toward also, you know, more speech and more communication to the extent that um, uh, speech is objectionable. So, you know, I, I feel very strongly that, that uh, if anything, we should be very careful about, um, you know, how we apply our terms of service to make sure that um, we're not squelching those things. At the same time, obviously, no one wants uh, someone organizing an attack on their network. And so, you know, there's a balance always to be struck between uh, being appropriately protective of, of, of the public and security and at the same time recognizing that one person's opposition is another person's, uh, you know, political perspective. Um, and, you know, the, at least in the United States, we, we very much try to recognize as many political perspectives as possible. So. Yeah, I think it's a difficult problem. I mean, I believe that you're absolutely right in the way you view your terms of service. 
And I think that the examples you pointed out that have been, you know, folks who have been on operating the internet for years have worried about spam, child porn, you know, they have a pretty, they're, they're, they're pretty safe definitions of those to, uh, to, to take action on. Um, obviously, gradations of support to the extent there is for something as reprehensible as ISIS is a much more uh, subjective set of criteria to judge uh, the you know continued existence on your platform. So I agree with you that 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 it's a, a delicate balance, and it's going to be interesting to watch. I think over the next few years, which direction this goes, because I think that there's going to be continue to be governmental pressure, which in many countries unlike ours, has a much more direct effect to deal with things like ISIS and deal with it probably overly broadly on a social media basis. Well, governments, you know, certainly have an incentive. Um, you know, they, governments are placed in a really difficult position because so much communication is going on now, uh, you know, on the Internet um, between individuals. Uh, it, it, it happens very quickly. It's very difficult in some cases for them to, to track it or see it. Uh, and they have a responsibility to protect the public. And so national security is certainly an important issue. I don't, I don't want to you know, diminish that in any way. At, at the same time, you know, they, they, the incentive on government might be you know, in the natural course to be too broad, right? To be better safe than sorry. At this, and I think that um, there needs to be a countervailing force or at least a measured, a, a countervailing measure which says absolutely, you know, be, be, be safe, but let's not be sorry. Right. Let's not squelch uh, civil liberties in, in, in the course of attempting to find the very small percentage of people um, who are uh, who are carrying out these actions. Let's make sure that we're we're being thoughtful and responsible about the vast majority of people who are going about their you know business using these services for for uh, you know for commerce for communication for um, things no one finds objectionable. Well, it's a fascinating set of problems, Ron, and I'm 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 happy that you're. You're at the helm there at uh, Yahoo to help help guide the resolution of these issues, and I want to thank you for spending time with me today on in-house legal. It's been a it's been a really enjoyable half hour. Thanks so much for having me, Randy. It's been a pleasure. And I want to thank all of you who've listened today to our podcast. For any of you who would like more information on what you've heard today, please visit www.legaltalknetwork.com, or you can also follow us on iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. That brings us to the end of our show. I'm Randy Milch, and thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great episode of In-House Legal. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always... Consult a lawyer.